Father, thank you for the chance to see so much of your spirit at work here this morning. For that's the purpose in our gathering. We come together to know you in spirit and in truth through the expression of your spirit in each of us. And it's so evident as we go through our morning that you are here this morning, Father, working through the prayers of the saints, working through the worship team, working through those who come to teach, those who have come to reflect their, their ministry outside this building and share that with us. From the work that's going on with our children and the work that went in to prepare for the communion meal this morning. Father, I thank you that through your spirit you can take empty vessels, fill them, and put them to use to your glory. Thank you that we have had the privilege to be counted among those whom you've called for that purpose. And as we sit here in this morning, Father, preparing to hear your word, I pray that that as well would be an opportunity for us to see your spirit at work in our hearts. We know we may learn things. We know we will see new things in the text. And that is a wonderful thing in itself. But, Father, I pray the spirit in each of us would be hearing for us on our behalf so that the truth of it would not escape us and so that the urgency of our actions in according, accordance with what we learn would not elude us. Call us, Father, not only to hear but to do, not only to understand, but to use what we learn in love for the sake of the glory of your kingdom in the name of Jesus. We ask you for that this morning while we sit at your feet and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Joseph is the man we're studying now, and as we saw last time, Joseph has devised a plan to reunite and to reconcile his family and to do it through a test of their hearts. Years earlier, as you know, the brothers had heartlessly sold Joseph into slavery, and they showed no pity on Joseph when he asked for it. They have continued since that time to go astray, and as Judah showed in chapter 38, the family has found new and different ways to fall to temptation. But all along, God's purpose and God's plan in these events has been to use the sin of these brothers' hearts ultimately to bring them back to himself. And now, as they have come to Egypt seeking grain and been sent away without one of their brothers, with Simeon now kept in prison, they face the truest test of all for their love for one another. Joseph is determined to prove out that his brothers' have repented of their sin against him, and have found again love in the family. And so he's held on to Simeon and said they cannot return to Egypt again unless they come back with the full complement of the brothers. This means not only all that came the first time, but also Benjamin. And then to make that decision even harder, he put the money that they had given for the grain back into their sacks without them knowing, so that when they discovered it, it would make it all the more difficult for them to consider returning, for fear that when they did return, they'd be accused of stealing having received back the money they paid. So Joseph's test is a test of loyalty and love for the brothers within that group of men. And secondly, it's a test of his father. And in fact, today the spotlight is going to move for a time to Jacob. A test on the father. Jacob's favoritism for the sons of Rachel, which we've seen now at various times in the study of Jacob and his family, that favoritism for Rachel and for her sons over Leah and her sons has been a tremendous source of strife in the family, going back decades now. Arguably, it's the cause for much of what you're seeing happen now among the sons. This family, though, according to God's word, is destined to become a nation of people. So it's essential that this family remain united and remain strong. And at this point in our story, it is anything but united and strong. 
So now here's the test Joseph has devised. It's going to hit both the brothers and the father in their weakest points. The brothers have to return to confront their past hatred for their brother Joseph indirectly by how they respond to his sibling, Benjamin. Has their hatred for the favoritism of Rachel's sons gone away or is it still there? And then secondly, Jacob. Jacob has to come face to face with that favoritism and with his selfishness and be forced to allow his favorite son, his new favorite son, Benjamin, to come to Egypt, perhaps never to return. Despite all of those pressures, neither Jacob nor the brothers, it appears, are truly ready to repent. That's not what we've seen so far. In fact, Jacob's heart is still so hard that it's going to require God to bring a worsening of the famine that's already taken hold in the region just to bring Jacob to the point where he's ready and willing to let Benjamin go. Now, what we've also been studying in the course of this story is the way the story of Joseph and his brothers pictures or shadows a prophetic future story concerning Israel. And these worsening conditions of this famine provide us with the reminder of that picture that's developing. It's a picture of the last days of tribulation to come when the world we know will be suffering under God's judgment. And that judgment of tribulation is merely a backdrop in Scripture for an even greater work that the Lord will be doing in that day to come, a work concerning Israel. And that work is to bring a stubborn, unbelieving Israel to its knees in that time and ultimately to a reconciliation with the one that Joseph pictures in this story, that is Christ. So remembering that that picture is developing, even as we study the events of Joseph's life, let's go back into the text. Genesis 43, verse 1 this morning. Now the famine was severe in the land, and so it came about that when they had finished eating the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. Judah spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, well, we'll go down and buy you food. But if you do not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You will not see my face unless your brother is with me. Then Israel said, Why do you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you still had another brother? But they said, the man questioned particularly about us and our relatives, saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So we answered his questions. Could we possibly know that he would say, bring your brother down? After Jacob refused the brother's request for them to return with Simeon to claim Simeon, it appears they just began to live off all that grain they bought the first time. Well, and that worked for a while. But, you know, grain only lasts so long. And in the midst of a famine, it runs out. Now, I would assume Jacob probably was hoping that whatever they had just bought would have held them over until the drought or the famine was over. And they'd never have to go back down into Egypt. That he effectively had left his son Simeon for dead in that place. Why? Because he didn't want to risk Benjamin's life. Benjamin mattered more to him than Simeon. It's just that simple. But the Lord has brought this famine for a reason, we understand. And therefore, until that reason has been met, this famine isn't going away. In fact, it's going to get worse. This is only the second year of a famine that we know by those dreams that Joseph interpreted was going to be a seven-year famine in total. They're just two years into it. 
And so Jacob, not knowing that, has tried to play his cards to stall. But now the grain's run out. So Jacob has no choice. He turns to his family and his sons and he says, you've got to go back down to Egypt. You have to buy us more grain. But the fourth son, Judah, he steps up at this point. He tells his dad, we're not going back, Dad. That man, and of course he's referring to Joseph, that man said, we can't come back until we have all of the brothers in our family present. And in fact, if we try to go back with even one less brother than the total, he said, we won't even see his face, which of course means that they won't get an audience with Joseph. If they don't get an audience with him, they won't get a chance to buy grain. The whole trip would be pointless if they don't bring all the brothers. So he says, we're not going to go. So Judah says, if you let me take Benjamin, we can get this accomplished. Now, to that response, or to that request, rather, Jacob utters one of the most revealing and self-centered comments in all of Scripture. In fact, I, I rank it right up there with that woman who you gave me, and am I my brother's keeper? You know, these astonishing statements that when you hear them spoken, you wonder what was going on in your head. Well, his statement is one that reveals both his focus and his perspective. First of all, it's a ridiculous statement. In fact, Judah points that out in verse 7. He says, how do you expect us to anticipate that when we answer a question about who our family is, that that would then result in the demand that Joseph made? How could you have expected us to know that in advance? It's ridiculous. And then secondly, even if they could have seen that coming, how could Jacob have expected his sons to perpetuate his father's favoritism for Benjamin? I mean, think about it. Even if they could have imagined Joseph's response, do you think they would have sat there and said to themselves, you know, if we let them know about Benjamin, they'll want to take him. And we know how much dad loves Benjamin and we want to protect him. No, they're mad about that. That's not something that's been healthy in the family. These sons would have hated the thought that their food depended on dad's favored son staying alive. They would have probably said, sure, you can have him. That's the problem that Joseph's trying to work out here. That's the issue he's trying to resolve. To put an end to the brother's rivalry in the family, which we think or suppose was created by the father's selfish behavior. I would also argue out of the testimony of Scripture that that's God's desire. That God has to solve this problem. Notice in verse 6, Jacob is suddenly being called Israel again. Now, you remember that we've studied this before, that whenever Jacob is beginning to turn to the direction of God, to turn to living according to God's call upon his life, that whenever that's happening in the narrative, Moses gives us an indication that that's happening by switching the name from his old name to his new name. Now, he's been called Jacob now for quite a while since the last time we saw this turn. But now, in this chapter, Moses is indicating Jacob is turning. The name Jacob, being his original given name, that's the name that's associated with a man who moved in his own power according to his own will by selfish desires and usually outside the counsel of God's will. And then the name Israel, the new name God gave to him, indicated a heart that had changed to consider and to move in the direction God had placed before him, to wrestle with God in the sense that he is bound to God as opposed to obstructing or fighting God. Wouldn't it be helpful, by the way, if we had two names like that and that those names would just switch anytime God needed to communicate to us whether we were walking in his will or not walking in his will? You know, you, you walk home and your wife or your husband or your friend or your brother or your sister starts using one name. Ooh, I know that that means something's happening. And then every time you're off track, people just start calling you by your earthly name instead of your godly name. 
But you know the truth is, according to Scripture, we've already got something better than that. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, according to Scripture, and He is always talking to us. He reveals God's desires. He reveals conviction of our sin at times as we walk. And above all, you have the Word of God, which is God's provision of instruction in the ways of obedience to the believer. The problem is not that God is not talking to us, that we need these funny things like name changes to communicate God's will. The truth is that our problem in following God has never been our ability to discern God's will or to know what he desires or to understand what obedience looks like. The problem has been our willingness to listen at times, to pay attention at times. That's essentially Jacob's concern. That's essentially Jacob's problem. Because although in verse 7, when Jacob's words still sound very selfish and very desperate, when you see Moses using the name Israel, it's our first clue to know that his heart is softening even in the midst of this process. Jacob is beginning to move in the direction of God, and hence Moses calls him by Israel. But I want you to notice it's not a joyful turn. Jacob is being dragged, kicking and screaming by God in the direction of obedience. In my experience, that's a more common method of my turn to obedience than the one that is idealistic, where you say, point me in the right direction, I'm ready to run with you. You know, we all like to think that's how it works, but more often it works like this. Circumstances force our hand. Doors are shut in our face. Opportunities are directed away or toward us in, in some sense. So that at the end of it all, we have to say, you know what, I have no choice. And then we fall in line. And I'm not saying that's the ideal or the preferred way. I'm saying that's often what God will do because of who we are. We ought to make it easier. But God will get his way. The question is, will we get credit for walking with him or not? You ever seen somebody take a dog for a walk that doesn't want it to be taken for a walk? My wife and I call it going out for a drag. But you know what? If you want the dog to go, the dog's going to go whether the dog goes willingly or not, right? And in this case, the famine is God's blunt instrument or it's God's leash that he's using to drag Jacob in the direction that Jacob needs to go to provoke this turn in his life. Romans tells us that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, and that is absolutely true. But don't ever forget that kindness doesn't always mean doing what you want. Kindness isn't measured by how happy you are. Kindness does not necessarily come in the form of getting your way. In fact, usually it's the other way around. The kindness of God means to be dragged to that walk you don't want to take. And it leads to repentance. Jacob's unwillingness to allow Benjamin to join his brothers creates another part of that picture for us, by the way. That picture of tribulation and of end times. I want you to consider that Joseph has stated flatly that the family of Israel will not see his face until all Israel has come before him, according to Joseph's instructions. They all must appear as one family, all of them present, all of them willing to submit themselves to Joseph's authority. If even one member of the family is missing, then the entire family of Israel will fail to see Joseph. That's his requirement. Now, we know already who Joseph pictures. He pictures Christ. And as a picture of Jesus, then we know the brothers, they represent collectively the Israel of the future. So you have Joseph and his brothers, Jesus and Israel, pictured in this story. And Jesus told Israel when he walked the earth the first time that they would be required, all of them as a nation, 
to do something if they ever wanted to see Jesus return to them. It comes at the end of Luke chapter 13. Jesus spoke these words right at a point in his earthly ministry when he had been rejected by the leadership of Israel as Messiah. And in response to their rejection, Jesus said this in Luke 13, 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together just as hens gather her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. And then he says in verse 35, Behold, your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, and listen to this, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those are the words Jesus spoke to Israel. He declared that after he departed the earth, after his death, resurrection, and ascension, then the Jewish nation would never see Jesus' face again as their Messiah sent to them as promised until they take a certain step. Now, what is that step? Well, he says the nation must reverse the sin of rejecting him. Where the generation of his first coming rejected him, there must be a generation of Israel to come in which Israel accepts the Messiah that the earlier generation rejected. And though the nation was unfaithful, God remains faithful to his promise. And in accordance with those promises, the ones he gave Abraham, the nation will have their Messiah one day, but it depends on that acceptance. Notice in verse 35 in Luke where I read, Jesus said he will not return until they declare, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that's a quote out of Psalm 119, the Messianic Psalm that describes Jesus. In that Psalm, that phrase is part of a declaration that Israel is said to make in the day that they receive their Messiah. It's prophetic. And Jesus says, just as is quoted in Psalm 119, you will not see your Messiah until the nation embraces me as Messiah. Now, that truth is being pictured here in the story of Joseph. I want you to consider the details. Jacob's sons are Israel. They must submit to Joseph before Joseph will show his face to them. But notice, before that can happen, the whole of Israel must be there. All the brothers, the 100% total of the tribes, must be before Joseph and make this declaration. It cannot be that only a partial Israel comes into this moment, according to Scripture. And that is consistent with what we're told by Paul will be the case for the last days, when Israel itself will be saved. Paul says in Romans 11.25, he says, Brethren, I do not want you to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and then or and so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In a future day, when the plan of God for his Gentile church has run its course and all that are appointed within the Gentiles have come into the body of Christ, then it says the Lord will bring mercy back to Israel, to a disobedient and stubborn Israel. And on that future day, the hardening of Israel will be lifted. And notice in verse 26, Paul says, all Israel will be saved. Now, all here refers to every single member of the nation of Israel alive on earth in that day will be included in this rescue. It's the parallel to our story of Joseph. They will see the Lord's face, but all will see it. Not even one will be missing. 
And in this moment in Joseph's story, the picture is, unless all brothers are present, Joseph won't show his face. Now, what would bring about such miraculous reversal of the Jewish nation's point of view? What could bring them as a nation to accept the Messiah that their forefathers rejected? Well, certainly they're not moving in that direction today as a nation. And as we move further into the story of Joseph and his brothers, we're going to see together what it is that brings about that reversal. It's also pictured in the story of Joseph and the brothers. And the rest of that picture fills in the gaps for us. But we already know one piece of it. We already know what begins the movement. We already understand, according to the story of Joseph, what will prompt Israel to even be thinking about such things. In our story, it's the famine, which is the picture of tribulation in the time of the end. So now, in this story, the famine is pressuring Jacob, pressuring the brothers to bring Benjamin back. Look where we go next in verse 8. Judah said to his father, Israel, send the lad with me. And we will arise and go that we may live and not die. We as well as you and our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. For if we had not delayed, surely by now we could have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags, carry them down to the man as a present, a little balm and a little honey, aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of the sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and arise, return to the man, and may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man so that he will release you, your other brother, and Benjamin." And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present and took double the money in their hand and Benjamin. And then they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. So they sensed their father's heart softening, perhaps to the prospect of sending Benjamin. So Judah steps forward and he puts an offer on the table. He says, I will take personal responsibility for Benjamin's safety if you let him go. What I like about Judah is he doesn't make the foolish offer that his older brother did earlier when he said, you know what, if I come back without your son, you can kill my sons, which was a bizarre thing to offer to the grandfather. Instead, Judah puts his own honor on the line, which is actually as valuable as anything he could have offered in that day. And with that honor came his right to any inheritance. In other words, if he had failed to bring back his son in the way he promised then he would have had to have forfeited his right to any of the inheritance. So in that culture, this is arguably the greatest thing Judah could have put on the table, and it's the persuasive thing that his father Jacob needed to hear. And it's only appropriate, by the way, that it would be Judah to do this. You remember Judah's role in Joseph's going away party? Judah was the instigator for the suggestion that they put him into slavery and that they sell him in the way that they did. So in a sense, you could say Judah's redeeming himself here to a degree by taking responsibility to bring this other brother back from harm. It's quite a turnaround for Judah. It's also symbolic. It's greatly symbolic. Judah is the one who is fourth in line in this family, according to birth. But his three older brothers have disqualified themselves for one various sin or another. Remember, Reuben slept with one of the concubines. Simeon and Levi had that excursion into Shechem in which they killed all those people. And both of those reflected poorly on Jacob and on his family. So as a result, that puts Judah now first in line in the family 
for the right to the seed promise. Now remember, the inheritance that Jacob carries is twofold, made so by God. He has the normal earthly inheritance every man has, which starts with a double portion to the oldest son and the right for that oldest son to become the patriarch for the next generation, with all the other sons getting another equal single portion. That's normal. Every man had that. But God stepped in into Abraham's life and carried it on through Isaac and Jacob and added another piece to the inheritance, something only God could give and God alone controls. And that was the seed promise, the promise that through this line, a Messiah would come. And God and God alone assigns that inheritance to each generation where Abraham thought it should go to Ishmael. God said, no, that's going to Isaac, where Isaac thought it should go to Esau. God said, no, that's going to Jacob. And now, within the family of Jacob, Judah will be the one to carry that seed promise forward, which we will find later in chapter 49. But Joseph carries the birthright. Joseph carries the right to the double portion and to the right to be patriarch in the next generation. So we have Joseph carrying the birthright, Judah carrying the seed promise. Folks, in the family of Israel, these two things cannot be split up. They have to stay together in the family. So if you have Judah selling Joseph into slavery, that can't stand. They must come back together. How appropriate is it that through the movement of the Spirit, Judah was the one who came to the foreground and made the claim and put his honor on the line and said, I will make the union happen. I will create the reconciliation for you, Dad. Now, I'm not saying they understood these things to the degree we might, but they had that movement in their heart and they reacted in the right way. And as a result, the family is now moving in the right direction, at least in these early steps. So reconciliation is key. What's also interesting about Judah's insistence that the brothers return is an apparent lack of concern on his part about the fact that all that money was found in their sacks. Isn't that interesting? There's no mention of it at this point, other than what Jacob says about it. It would appear as though the brothers have set aside that fear in consideration for their brother's needs. Another good sign in this family. Despite the possibility that they might be accused of stealing, they might be jailed or killed for that accusation, nevertheless, they're going to persist in returning, which is exactly what they needed to do. That was the the passing of that test. It's another good sign. And so Judah tells Jacob, we could have been there and back twice by now if you'd already let me go. We need to go now. If you just do the math on the travel time, what he's saying is it's been at least two months since they came back from Egypt the first time. All this time, Simeon just languishing in prison. And then in verse 11, Israel moves in God's direction. He agrees. He says, yes, you may go. You may take my son, Benjamin. And notice in this list of things he says, I want you to take back in this list of gifts. Nothing here is of any real value. It's all very low in value, even for that day. There's no grain. There's no succulent fruits. There's no dairy products. There's no animals. It's just some nuts, a little honey, and some spices. That's table stakes. That's nothing in that culture. It suggests that this is truly the best they have at hand, that this famine has been so devastating they don't have anything else to offer. It gives us another window into the pressure of what God has done in this family. It's like the widow giving her might. It's all they had. Then Jacob mentions the money. He says, take double what you took the first time, plus take back what they gave you after the first trip. So they're basically going with three times the money. Remember back in the first trip, each of them returned, we're told, with money in their sacks. I don't know if you caught that or not, but it wasn't just one of them getting their money back. They each had money when they left. 
they each got that money back when they returned. So there were 10 sacks of money going down and 10 sacks of money coming back. Now there will be 10 brothers traveling again because Simeon got left behind. So we're back to 10 again. But this time they're going to be traveling with two times the money, or you could say two sacks of money. Now, isn't it fascinating how God brings our mistakes full circle upon us in the way that he's doing here? But he brings it with consequences. How much money did they get for Joseph? Do you remember? It's 20 pieces of money, 20 pieces of money for that sale. Now they're returning with 20 sacks of money to compensate for that mistake they made earlier. They don't know that yet, but you can see God's hand in it. The repayment for our sin may often greatly exceed the value of that sin itself. And it seems interesting to me that God has taken the numbers in the way he has and magnified them in the way he has, perhaps to reflect the fact that what they got in the first instance is being repaid in a much greater way by each of the sons. Then they travel, Benjamin with the men. And Jacob places the boy's welfare in their hands, but you notice also he places the boy's welfare in God's hands. Jacob appeals to the Lord for protection, and he says, May the Lord have compassion on this family. But... If my son is taken from me, so be it. Now, that's not a sign of a lack of love. And that's not fatalism. Jacob was willing to trust in God for the outcome as a step of faith, no longer trying to manipulate or manage this on his own. Isn't this the ultimate uh, struggle we've seen in Jacob his whole life? It's either he does it or he lets God do it. But he's still hedging his bets. This is what I love about Jacob being such an honest representation of a man who's conflicted by his own sin. Look at the tactics. These are the same tactics he's applied during previous crises. Remember when he tried to buy off Esau with all those gifts before Esau met him because he was afraid that Esau was going to kill him when they finally met up? That proved totally unnecessary. Do you remember that? And yet, right before that happened, what did Jacob do? He wrestled with the angel of the Lord in which... He begged the Lord, he held on to the Lord and begged the Lord for a blessing in the face of this approaching foe. So he depended on God, but then he covered his bets with a camel load full of gifts. He's doing exactly the same thing here. He gives his sons something of value to appease the anger of this man, perhaps. But then he also turns to the Lord and asks for mercy in case the appeasement doesn't work. If the load of gifts to his brother didn't help, how much do you think these worthless little gifts are going to help? But it's a reflection of his heart. It's a reflection of his struggle. It's a reflection of the fact that we want to have a hand in whatever work God is calling us to do, even if it's a meaningless little thing. He wanted it because he wanted to control the outcomes. We might want it because we don't have full faith and trust God can do what he promises to do. Whatever our motivation is. This is the story of Israel, the nation, resting in their works. But if that fails, resting in the Lord is their backup. You can really argue that is the history of Israel as a people group. That's really the personality. That's in the DNA of these people. But folks, the scriptures make clear the Lord is not content to be our backup strategy. He's not content to be our fallback when everything we've tried doesn't work. He is no strategy at all. He is the one who saves by his mercy and accomplishes by his will all that has been appointed. And our choice is never to make that possible or not. Our choice is to join in it or not. For what he wills will be. And the Lord always stands ready to offer mercy, but only to those who humble themselves. And as Jacob has grown in his walk, we have seen him rely, but we've also seen him slip back and try to do for himself. What I love about his story is that with each 
new experience, his opportunity to contribute diminishes. Such that to this point, he's offering the king of the earth, literally, Pharaoh and his right-hand man, the most pitiful of gifts anybody could offer. And yet, in his mind, somehow that is still gaining him an advantage. It's a reflection of just how meaningless and worthless our works are when they are accomplished in place of faith, rather than as a matter of faith. I can do all things through he who strengthens me. I can do nothing, though, in my own power. To those who acknowledge their weakness and inadequacy to meet God's standards, he delights to step into that gap and show himself strong. The test isn't done yet. The testing that Joseph plans to bring upon this family has only begun. In fact, the third test won't happen until they sit at the table together in our next chapter. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the day we've had. Again, I thank you for the word, and I thank you, Father, for the example of Jacob. He is a man much like us, Father, called by faith, given promises, placed on a walk that is intended to grow him spiritually, expected to obey, but often to fail. But yet, Father, he is also given as an example in Scripture of how you may do great things through the frailties of men, not as an excuse for our frailties and not to excuse our willful disobedience, but just to remind us that where we strive against you, we accomplish nothing. When we strive with you, your power can do much. And when we hedge our bets and we cover our, the bases and try to do some of both, we waste our time. We dissipate our energy. We confuse ourselves concerning where things are happening, who's responsible and who receives the credit. We risk walking away from you as we lean more on ourselves rather than on you. So I pray, Father, that in this church we would always be mindful of how you are the one doing those things that we accomplish, that our small size is intended to remind us on a daily basis of how weak we truly are, and give us hope, Father, that you can do great things despite our weakness. But we're not content to remain who we are, Father, not in spirit, not in flesh. We pray you continue to grow us in both, both areas. You continue, Father, to grow us spiritually in the grace and knowledge of Christ. We pray also you continue to grow us in our bodies by sanctifying us and calling us out of the life of sin that we may have and into a walk with you. And let us be a light to this city for that purpose. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.